0: Turn in the Word of God together to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, we'll read the whole chapter. This is the Word of the Lord. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. Or let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low: because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good and good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the father of lights with whom is no variableness neither shadow of turning of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures wherefore my beloved brethren let every man be swift to hear slow to speak slow to wrath For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, He is like a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. There ends our reading of God's holy and inspired word. The text for the sermon is verses 2 through 4. I'd like to reread that now. Verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing." Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, I originally preached this sermon on the occasion of the new year. It's already February now. It's nearly a month, a month old. And this is now, I think, the fourth time that I've preached this sermon. I don't think I've preached it in any of the churches that there are visitors here tonight. But if so, I hope you still profit. The reason I've preached it not just once, not just twice, but am continuing to go back to it tonight is the impression that it made upon my own heart. And seeing that the Word of God has made an impression on my own heart makes it a joy for me to preach this Word. When we consider the idea of trials and temptations, there, it's, there's always ready application for us. Every single one of us experiences or has experienced and will experience trials and temptations. And the difficulty of counting it all joy, the difficulty that arises out of our flesh, ought to be addressed by us. Why is it that it's so difficult to count it joy? And it's a matter of flesh versus faith and having a believing perspective of those trials with our eyes on the Lord Jesus and on The God who is sovereign over them. Since this was a sermon for the new year, I looked at it from a few different perspectives. The first thing that I did was look backwards at the previous year, and even though it's February now, you can still look backwards. Look backwards at the trials of your life, and think about the joys and the joys also, and the sorrows, the temptations, and the sins. God's mercy, God's faithfulness. And if you think about the last year, the last month, the last decade, you will no doubt bring to your mind trials, right? Everyone endures trials. But then at the beginning of a new year, and still today, looking forward, we can look forward and say that there will be joys and there will be blessedness, but we can say with certainty also, there will be trials, I will endure trials. I don't have any doubt about that for myself. No one ought to be doubting that. That's the way. It's the good pleasure of God that His people should enter into the kingdom through much tribulation. It's given us graciously In Philippians 1, we read that it's graciously given to us not only to believe, but also to suffer on behalf of Christ. We can look backwards and say we've known trials. We can look forwards and we can rightly say there will be trials. We do well to prepare for them. But I don't want to neglect either the moment that we're in right now. And the souls that are here right now, and though there are some, maybe, surely, who are graciously spared, certainly there are also those here tonight who are in the middle of trials. So there's a special urgency and a timeliness for you. And as a matter of wisdom, as we seek to please God in all things, there's a word for all of us. The command that is given in the text, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, is not a difficult command to understand, but it's very difficult to apply. Trials and joys, these seem to be mutually exclusive. And some would even dare say that James is perhaps out of touch, a little out of touch with what people are actually enduring. Can he really say to them, count it all joy in diverse temptations? Some might even question, maybe perhaps with a little more hesitancy, what does he really mean by that? It can't really mean what I think it means. It can't really mean real joy in hard times. Others, with perhaps even a little bit more tact, think, well, yes, that's what it means, but I don't think that there's, it's always appropriate to bring this word. I've thought that myself. Yes, I believe that we ought to count it all joy in diver- and when we fall into diverse temptations, but be careful and maybe don't tell someone that who is in the middle of trials. That might be insensitive, counter and unprofitable but if we truly believe in the inspiration of God's word then we ought to be slow to hear this word swift to hear rather and careful to consider the wisdom of it it's a passage that pricks all of our hearts even the hearts of the most mature Christians, because it's a challenge in a very practical way to walk by faith and not by sight. Let's consider the passage under the theme, Our Trials, a Cause for All Joy. First, the meaning. Second, the reason. And third, the calling. So when we consider our trials a cause for all joy, the first thing that you notice is that I'm using the word trials instead of temptations. Trials and temptations. You can see even in this very chapter that both are present here. In verse 2, we have temptations. We have, uh, in verse 12, temptations again. And then also when he is tried. And in verse 3 also, the trying of your faith. These seem to be interchangeable and indeed they are. Trials and temptations. The translators of the King James Version of the Bible Yous took one Greek word and in different contexts, they would translate it in two different ways. One Greek word for one idea that they understood could be viewed from two different perspectives. And you understand this too. Because when we think of this one thing from the point of view of temptations, we think of the devil trying laboring to get us to sin, enticing us to sin. When we think of trials, there is a much more neutral perspective of these hard things, these difficulties, and the purpose of it is not for us to sin, but the purpose of it is God's purpose, which is given in the text, to work patience. These these things, need, we need to view this one idea from two different perspectives because we can't really say certain things about these hardships from one perspective while we can say them from the other perspective. When we view these things as temptations and when we fall into temptations, we understand that that means that we have committed sin. That's not a cause for joy. That's a cause for weeping. But on the other hand, when we fall into these things from the perspective of God, and they are not an enticement to sin, but they are difficulties that God has placed in our life, there's something there for us to rejoice in. This one thing can be boiled down to hardships. I've used that language already. Hardships and afflictions and tribulations of every kind. There's a unity also between the two perspectives. In these hardships and afflictions, God is sovereign over every single one of them, and he's always working for his purpose, which for Christ's sake is our good. And in these same hardships and afflictions, the devil is at work luring us into doubt and unbelief and to bitterness and to Blasphemy and every other manner of sin. James is speaking in general terms of what I will call trials. Use those terms somewhat interchangeably, but these trials, especially from the perspective of what God has ordained for us in them. He speaks generally of trials or temptations, and he makes that abundantly clear by the the adjective diverse. Diverse means of many many kinds. Diverse temptations of many different kinds. Now, the saints to whom James writes, these are the twelve tribes who are scattered abroad, Twelve tribes who are scattered abroad. And with that comes all sorts of implications about the kinds of trials they were enduring. When you are scattered, that means that you have to leave your home. It means that you are having difficulty even living or worshiping or working. It means that you are separated from some of the people you know and love. Perhaps family members, perhaps church members. Your fellowship with one another is interrupted. You probably have lost some property. You, pro- you may also have suffered great pain under persecution. And you likely have, or almost certainly, have lost some privileges in your life. If you haven't been paying attention to what's happening in Myanmar and what's happening in India and what's happening in many different other places in the world, start and consider that they are being scattered or that they may be scattered at any given moment. And start reading some of the letters of Reverend Titus in Myanmar and how they are ready to flee. They are ready to be scattered. And consider that it may be God's will at some point, if he is pleased, to scatter you. Think about what that might mean for you and what kind of pain that might bring you. But when he uses the term diverse temptations, he shows us he's not limiting it to these trials of persecution, but he's speaking very broadly. Literally, the idea of diverse is of many colors. Many colors, many kinds, many types, many modes, There's no distinction made. And that's helpful for us when you look about yourself at the congregation or consider even within your own homes. There are people here that are experiencing some terrible afflictions and I don't know anything about them. And even if I know all about them, I don't know anything about what they're experiencing How can I really identify with those who are suffering so differently? Well, here is ground for understanding that even though there's diversity of trials, there's chronic pain, there's terrible grief and loss of loved ones, there's loss of Home. There's earthly afflictions. There's spiritual suffering. There's depression and anxiety and mental afflictions and all of these things. We don't all understand these things together, but we can understand it's difficult, it's hard, painful. We all experience them, and we experience them. The text says when we fall into them. That's part. That's the language that accords with our own human nature. That We're not sovereign beings who get to decide what afflictions we walk into. We are dependent and we are subject to the will of our sovereign God. And that means we don't go looking for trials, even though they're cause for joy. We ought not and we need not. We're weak, infallible, limited human beings. We endure trials because and are on account of our own sins and the curse of God upon the whole world for our original sin. Think about some more kinds of trials that we fall into. We fall into the sickness of the body. We fall into the various cares of the world, earthly needs. We fall into the loss of loved ones. We fall into strife amongst family and friends. Or the loss of property or car accidents or flooding or fire or an interruption in our work or a loss of job or business. We fall into various evils like sin committed against us or the persecution of our enemies or the treachery of our friends. Even we fall into, in a, from a certain perspective, the consequences of our own sins there are times when the trials we endure, we know not why God has brought them into our lives. And in other cases, we can know why. God is chastising us and bringing a consequence of our own sins into our lives. We can fall into difficulties at church and in, at work and in school. Personal difficulties, marital difficulties, Parental difficulties, adolescent difficulties. There can be struggles in relationships and also struggles in the single life. Personal, private struggles, heart-wrenching struggles. Those that none seem to understand or that none know about or none know about fully. Like a thorn in the flesh which afflicted the Apostle Paul and which many debate and seek to understand exactly what it is, but no one knows for certain or with clarity. Trials. You have trials, don't you? What's making your life difficult right now? What burden is weighing down your heart, filling your mind, causing you pain? Have your mind on one or two of them? On your own now? Or your own as you feel it for your loved ones? Count it all joy. Even after reading this verse a hundred times, maybe not a note of surprise rings in our ears. Joy, joy. No, we knew that was coming. You knew it was coming. There's still a genuine uneasiness or a faltering at the application. There can be joy in many things, but joy in this. When we think of trials and hardships, we think of many different emotions and affections. We think of fear and worry, sorrow and anxiety. We think of pain. If joy is on our list, it's not near the top of our list for falling into trials. And if we think of this verse and we would be bold and presumptuous and say, maybe there's a better way, a better way to state this. We might expect something else. My brethren, count it all worthwhile. We can get with that. Count it all worthwhile when we fall into diverse trials. We could go along with that. Count it all worthwhile as a part of the big picture. Count it all as a part of God's high and heavenly ways so that even though you don't understand it, just get through it. Count it all to be a part of the debt that we owe on account of our sins so that there's really no joy to be found here, but we understand that we deserve these trials. And there may be truth in all of those things, but none of them are inspired here by the Spirit of God. What is inspired here is to count it all joy. Joy, what is joy then? We can't redefine it to mean something new, to mean something that we can maybe accept in our trials. Joy is the experience of gladness. You know what it is. You felt joy in various ways. Joy is closely associated with happiness and things that are good. But there's the difficulty, isn't it? When we think about trials and temptations, you may rightly consider those things to be evils. Evils. There's all kinds of evils in our life. Hardships. And now we're supposed to count it all joy, which is associated with all things good and delightful and pleasant. But these things are evils. There's our difficulty in applying this thing. And not only do we count it all joy, and we regard it as a reason to experience gladness, but we are called to count it all joy. All joy refers to a complete and undisturbed joy. Complete and undisturbed joy. So that it's not mixed with sorrow, but it's a full joy. Nothing is robbed of that joy, but it's full. I want you to think now about these trials and remember that they are all in all of our lives. We all have trials for all of our life. Just imagine the way of our life filled with trials. Sometimes they are enlarged, sometimes they are intense, but we have all these trials. And with those trials comes pain and sorrow and grief and all kinds of hardship. But then at the same time, without being disturbed and without taking, without taking away from the realities of pain, there is also an unmixed joy. Trials and everything that comes with them and joy overlapping each other. Don't think of the joy to which we are called count it all joy and now everything I feel, all the pain, all the suffering, all the loss and everything that comes with it, now all joy and counting it all joy means that we need to drive out all of those negative feelings and emotions so that they're out of the picture. That's impossible. You can't and don't try don't imagine that the call to count it all joy means you aren't allowed to or you ought not feel that real pain. In fact, God is using that pain. God is using that hurt. God is using that grief for your good and he is going to use it even for your joy. Don't drive it out. We need to learn from that. But also The calling here is don't let all of that pain and grief rob something of joy so it's incomplete. going to come in a moment to consider the reason, but before we do, I just want to stop and pause and consider what an idea this is. What an amazing idea. According to the inspired Word of God, believers have a joy that abides through all of our trials. Believers have a joy that surpasses over and above the pain, surpasses all of our trials. And believers can even enter into the heat of those trials and say, in this trial, I have a complete experience of gladness. When you look back and think about the trials of the past year, that may prick our hearts. It surely will. It did for me. We're far more like the Israelites in the wilderness, murmuring and complaining than we were like Job and the prophets who patiently endured to see the end of the Lord. And for those sins, and that is sin, we confess them before the face of God and we cast ourselves on the mercies of the Savior and seek a cleansing in His blood. And we resolve in our hearts to turn from that way of suffering to a way of godly suffering and to rejoice according to the Word of God when we fall into diverse temptations. And we even allow our remorse Our godly sorrow for suffering poorly to launch us forward so that we suffer well. And think about what a privilege it is to look forward. I don't think anybody here would object to my statement earlier that there are trials ahead. For every one of us, there is a complete, undisturbed experience of gladness in those trials. So, even though we see a path ahead and it's strewn with hot coals and broken glass and littered with enemies and obstacles and all kinds of certain pain, we don't fear and we don't faint, but are ready to experience gladness. This is a privilege only for God's children. Don't forget that the wicked will look at their pathway and see that it glitters like gold. Everything goes easy for them, but there's no experience of gladness—not in the end for the wicked, and not along the way. Not that joy that we know. The reason that we are—that we can count it all joy when we fall into diverse trials is that God has a purpose in it. We know this purpose. The scattered saints knew this purpose. So from a certain point of view, while my sermon would be incomplete if I stopped now, you could go home and you would have heard truth. You would have heard the truth that in your trials, you ought to count it all joy. Now we're going to complete the thought and see that this is possible only according to the good will of God toward us for Jesus' sake. In his compassion for us, he has inspired also the reason, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. The trying of your faith, this word trying, is slightly different than the word for trials and temptations. In verse 2, slightly different, but it still comes from the same idea. Especially focuses now on the idea of testing. Testing so that the process is emphasized instead of the and the purpose is emphasized instead of the, the hardship of it. The trying, the word trying refers to, in its original form, the testing of metals like gold and silver, and the process of purifying them and confirming that they are genuinely pure gold or silver. The trying process is a fiery process. It involves a hot furnace, and the raw material, the raw gold with all of its impurities, is then put into the hot flaming fire, and it serves to burn off all of the dross so that what comes out of the fire is more pure than than what went out. Into the fire, So it is good for the gold to go into the fire. It comes out more pure. And when it comes out, it may not be that all of the dross is burned off. You may need to take it and you need to put it back in the fire again. And again, the process is the same. What went in was not truly pure. What comes out is more pure than before. In the trials of life, We go through the fires of affliction and persecution and tribulation. And God is trying our faith. He's trying our faith so that when we are put into the furnace of affliction, our faith is that which is pure. Our faith is that which cannot be burned and corrupted by the flame. But there is in us that which is corrupt, that which is dross and of our flesh. So we need to go into the furnace so that we come out more pure than before. That faith that goes into the fire is our union with Jesus Christ. It's our, con- our living, organic connection to him. And what is burned off are all the doubts of our flesh, so that we come out more and more confirmed in our connection to Jesus Christ and more strengthened, so that we more earnestly believe, we more fully believe, we are slower to fall into the doubts that we had before because God has proved Himself faithful. We have looked in the trial to Christ Jesus as the Savior of our souls. Now think about gold and what gold has to gain from the furnace. And the fact that gold has nothing to lose. If you are working with gold and you want it to be the most valuable, most beautiful, most treasured, You put that into the fire over and over and over again. And the gold has nothing to fear and nothing to lose from the fire. You put your trust in the Lord Jesus, who are united to him by a true faith. You do not have anything to lose from the trials of this life. You can only gain and only grow. The trying of your faith worketh patience. Here is where we, how we can understand the gain and the growth. What is the product of the trying process for our faith? It works patience. Patience is the capacity to endure and to persevere in steadfastness. It's, we understand it more commonly as endurance. And so it's not just the fortitude to wait or the ability to just sit for longer than we thought while we wait for something to, be, to come to us or to be given to us, but it's stamina and endurance in the face of great difficulty. It's a steadying power and a sustaining power so that we're not moved During the trials, but we press on. The principle that the trying of our faith works patience is easily illustrated in the realm of athletics. As athletes seek to improve in their sport, they go through trials. The marathon runner tests himself, that's how he practices. And if you set out at the beginning of the year, if it's your New Year's resolution or you see the weather beginning to be nice again and you think, this is the year, I'm going to run the riverbank run, then you might start out this week and say, going to start slow, going to just do two or three miles. A two or three mile run and that's going to be a good start. And so you start out with good intentions and you get on the road and you start running and you only make it a mile and a half. You didn't even complete your small goal; you failed. But as a marathon runner and as someone who understands the principle of working endurance, you're not discouraged. You just understand that this was part of the process to grow and to increase in strength. And the same will be true in a few months from now when. He's ready for the riverbank run and just a few weeks off and he says, I'm going to try to run a full 10 or 12 miles now and he sets out to run 10 or 12 and he only does 9 and he's failed again. That's part of the process. It's part of what makes him stronger for, the, the pro, for running the race when it is time. And the same is true if you're going to want to get stronger and you want to build muscle and you go into the weight room. What you do when you lift weights is you say, I'm going to lift not only as much as I can, but I'm going to lift it up over and over again until I can't lift it anymore. And if you have ever talked with someone who lifts weights or you've lifted weights yourselves, then you know that they might say, I'm going to failure here. Going to failure. That means I'm not going to stop until the weight drops or I drop. And that's how you build strength, doing that over and over again. Now, when we're training for a race or we want to grow in strength, we can make our own plan and we can decide how much do we want to push ourselves and how much do where do we and when do we want to push ourselves? It's very different in the race of life because we're not sovereign. We just fall into these diverse trials and temptations. So think about that God is sovereign and that God is pleased not to lead us from Goshen to the promised land on the highway, but to lead us through the sea and through all the trials of the wilderness. And how God is pleased to confirm Job as a perfect and upright man who eschews evil and to do so through much trials and afflictions. Think about how God has worked in your own life. And if you could choose the trials you endured, you probably would have never chose the ones that God sent. But God is wise. Wise. And our experience is something like if we have a pain in our back or a pain in our leg or wherever, and they go to the doctor, and the doctor is pushing and prodding, and he's saying, Does it hurt here? No. Nope. Does it hurt here? A little bit. Does it hurt here? Ouch. That's where it hurts. That's where the I'm injured. There's a problem here. Now, God, the great physician, has ordained a path for you, for every one of us, and he's constantly guiding us by his hand into the right trials, not so that he can discover where is the weakness, but so that we discover where is the weakness. So that we discover here. You must learn, and you must grow, and you must be humbled, and you must look up. Like Abraham, when he was tried, God the faithful father led him and tried him, tempted him to offer up his only begotten son Isaac and asked him, Do you believe me? Do you love me? Will you follow me? Will you obey me? Even when I strike where your earthly love is so great for this child, even when I bring you, bring him, down to death, do you trust me that I will raise him up? Will you still offer him on the altar to confirm Abraham, to prove him? Or in the case of David, in his sin, when God brought his heavy hand down upon him and caused his bones to ache, and caused him to groan all night long as he continued in his impenitence and took away from him the joy of his salvation till finally he understood. He must acknowledge his sin to God. Or in the case of Job who was an upright man who was receiving no chastisement for any weakness in himself, he still grew through all those trials, even though the occasion for it was, to answer the devil, who said the only reason Job fears God is because he has it so good. So God gave the devil permission to afflict him, to prove Job, to prove that faith between Job and his Lord and that it would endure throughout all of those trials. Where is God pressing upon you and your heart, your mind, your life? Where does it hurt? And perhaps looking forward, what do you love the most? He may be even unduly to a degree that is out of harmony With the first commandment, loving these things, loving this person more than God himself, it may be that God presses there till it hurts. But it's for your good. Going to work patience. And patience has a work of its own. According to verse 4, "...let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing." A perfect work is a completed work. It's a work that has reached the goal. And the recipe for patience's perfect work is, has only two ingredients. It has the ingredient of time and the ingredient of trial. Through time and through trials, patience is reaching its goal. So as the trials multiply and intensify, And as our enduring of the trial molds and shapes us, the end result of the trials of our complete walk in this world is a whole saint. A perfect faith that is ready to praise the God of his or her salvation. This is our sanctification which God accomplishes in those who belong to Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit and through the means of the word and making use also of the many trials and afflictions that he has ordained and graciously gives to us to prepare us for the kingdom of heaven. We know this. We know that God is using our trials. And because we know this, we can count it all joy. This way of thinking isn't natural for us. Only when we come to know God as our Father for Jesus' sake, and as we come through the gospel to know His wonderful power, His amazing grace, His abundant mercy, and His absolute sovereignty, and His incomprehensible love. Only when we come to know God as the God of our salvation and Jesus, His Son, as our Savior and friend, can we be so sure that this life which He has ordained for us is good and we have reason for gladness through every part of it. And that even when these trials become these great mountains that are so great, and we can hardly imagine that we can overcome all of the grief and all of the hurt we have experienced in this in this life or will experience. We have a joy that's in the heavens. It's never touched by the pain that we feel below. It abides and it's even increased through the trials that we endure. And the reason that we can be so sure that we have such a great joy and that all of the great afflictions we experience in this life cannot touch them is because the gospel takes us to the cross. And when we go to the cross of Jesus Christ, we see a trial. And we know something about trials, but there's something there at the cross that we know nothing about because our trials have been emptied of what we observe at the cross, which is the fullness of God's wrath, his punishing wrath against our sins being poured out upon our righteous Savior and the agonies of hell being endured by him there his whole life long and on the cross and the experience of complete and utter loneliness and isolation and separation so that this soul cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? At the cross, there is reason for weeping and gnashing of teeth. That belongs to the experience of hell. In our afflictions, we don't have that. We're spared that. When we're afflicted, we have this living bond to Jesus Christ. It can't be touched, and it can't be severed. And it will endure and only be strengthened until we're finally perfected in the new life. The calling. calling is given to my brethren. Don't pass over those words. My brethren. Or any hesitancy that we might have to bring this exhortation to someone who is suffering, it all melts away with these first two words. My brethren. Because by addressing those scattered saints in this way, he says to them, he has a kinship with them, first of all, a connection to them as members of one body, but he also identifies that he understands. He understands something of their suffering, even if it's not exactly the same, of the same kind. It's of a different color or a different type. He understands. This exhortation is appropriate to bring in the context of relationships, in the context of friendships. And I've had to ask myself this, and even to my own shame, that where there was a hesitancy for me to bring this word to someone, there was something lacking in the relationship, so that I wasn't sure that they really knew that I had compassion and understanding for them. That's the importance of relationships and of the brotherhood of a congregation and of families. And when he says, My brethren, he speaks with compassion and with empathy. One commentator, William Hendrickson, speaks of the accusation against James, which he doesn't believe or support, that James is the typical pastor who knows how to make sermons but is unaware of the suffering of his people's experience. That's not James, and that's not your pastor, and that's not our pastors. but Brethren. James knew. James understood. God's people know pain and suffering. We know obstacles and challenges. So don't despise the encouragement of your brethren and don't be afraid to bring this encouragement to those who are suffering. And if they object, if a suffering saint objects, you're telling me to count it all joy as I'm going through this? How dare you? and build that relationship. Show them you understand, not their particular trial, but you understand pain. Remind them of your brotherhood and of the law of Christ and the burdens that we bear with one another. And now, very specifically, I want to apply the Calling to count. Make an account. Now, if you would go back and look at all of the trials, and for some of you, you have a long, long list. And you can put them in a spreadsheet and you can go right down the first column. Here's the trials column and you can go one right after the other and you go down and you're in the hundreds or maybe you're in the thousands. For others of you, you can, you've experienced one such great trial that if I say to you, go through all of your trials, you think, here it is. This is the trial that I've been experiencing my whole life, the burden I bear my whole life. Here it is. Fine. That's okay. Then, go across the top column and you have all these different emotions and feelings and experiences. I experience pain. I experience sorrow. I experience worry. I experience Panic, And then maybe there's positive things also, but you're going to make sure that you have one column called joy. And if you go through all of these trials, you can go through the first few, the negative emotions and associations, and you can put them in as many categories as you want. When I suffered that loss, when I had that illness, it was hard, it was difficult, I panicked, I worried, and all the rest... But when you get to this column, joy, every single one of those trials will be put here in this column too. Joy in this, joy in that, joy in the next one, one after that, joy in the great burden of my life, all joy. going to count it all joy in our trials. Going to need much grace through Jesus Christ. They need to learn to use a new language. Use a language of godly suffering. The language of fleshly, worldly suffering is, why me? How could this happen to me? Why now? Of course. The language of godly suffering and joyful suffering sounds something like this I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. My help comes from Him. Who neither slumbers nor sleeps. I have hope that my end is good, and that affliction not only has been, but shall be for my profit. I am sure that God's word is true, as it is written. If you're going to suffer in a godly manner, you're going to have to learn the language of the scriptures and the promises of the scriptures. We're going to suffer in a godly manner. We're going to have to learn how to speak with the language of the covenant and to remember our Father and that relationship and that union with Jesus Christ. And we're going to have to speak in the language of His kingdom, to speak of His great power and His great might and His sovereignty over all things. We're going to have to learn the language of music and singing And joyful exaltation that we bring even to the depths of the valley of the shadow of death. Which is wherein we still have confidence that he has not left us or forsaken us. And as we speak in this way, in that language, believing in Jesus Christ, we let patience have her perfect Work. And when you still struggle to have joy in your trials, don't faint. There's a reason there are still trials to endure. We're not ready yet for heaven. Patience hath not had her perfect work. We're still wanting something. Press on the experience of gladness in all of your trials. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank Thee for this wonderful assurance of Thy Word and for the calling, though it be a lofty one and impossible for the flesh, yet by faith in Jesus Christ and in union with Him, we have this confidence and we have this gladness. So receive our praise and use us to magnify thy most holy name as the one who is so good even in our trials and afflictions.